welcome to the Fight for Grade Level Reading. I'm Brian Reese. This week, I talked to Ginger Young. She founded a nonprofit in North Carolina that over the past eight years has given out one million books to kids in the area. It's not just a book giveaway program, though. She's learned a lot of lessons along the way about parent engagement and what really works in promoting early childhood literacy. With us this week is Ginger Young, founder and executive director of Book Harvest, a nonprofit in North Carolina that provides books and literacy support to families and their children. Thank you so much, Ginger, for coming on. Thanks for having me, Brian. Well, tell us a little bit about Book Harvest. I mean, it's relatively new. You're about eight years old now, right? That's right. We were started a bit unwittingly out of my garage in the back of my minivan in 2011 when I began and focusing on something that had been bothering me for years, actually, which is that my three children had lots and lots of books. And I knew children who lived just a mile from have books. And at the time, I was not focused on the research. I was thinking about this transactional problem that we had, you know, probably 500 books at home. And what was the mechanism by which I could just get those books that my kids were done with, they had loved, but they still had a lot of life left in them to kids who, who might benefit from them. And what I did not realize in 2011 was that was an idea that a whole lot of people were excited to get behind because I told a couple of friends that we were cleaning off our shelves at home and I'd be taking the books that my kids were generously giving up and bringing them to a place where kids could take them home, adopt them, to give them new forever homes. And within two weeks, I had 6,000 books in my garage (laughs) because all these other people thought it was a great idea. Right. So I suddenly realized there was this kind of tidal wave that was sort of flowing out of the, the simple the powerful notion that every child deserved to have bedtime stories and books on their nightstands. And that first year, 2011, it really was me driving around in this minivan with a whole bunch of books that people were giving me, placing them on bookshelves in places where kids from low-income families tended to go, like social service agencies, after-school programs, community centers, and restocking those shelves every week right. um, with signs on the shelf saying kids-free books. And so that was the, the germ of an idea that started Book Harvest. I was fairly quickly growing impatient with the idea that that was good enough. I began reading research and was really blown away by what I was finding, that it wasn't just my instinct about my own kids that led me to believe that those first three to five years of having books and story times had laid the foundation for a lifetime of loving reading. It was really so clear from the research that having books in the home can confer benefits way beyond just loving to read, but, you know, kindergarten readiness third grade reading proficiency, high school graduation, but that that alone was never going to be sufficient. It was necessary to have books, but not sufficient. So I began really digging into more research to architect some programs that were book-based that had more components to them. That's when we really got started having a lot of fun. <laughs> right. Well, what did, you, um, what did you learn in those early days that you then used to transform Book Harvest from just stocking those shelves to what it is now? The two big revelations for me were that there are two domains that we really have to link arms with to be able to really have an impact. One is the home and the other is school. And I would now add there's a third space, kind of the third space in my mind is all the other places yeah. people spend time. But that was a later kind of addition. And, and when I talk about the home, I'm really thinking about and I was thinking then about those first five years. We don't have a coherent strategy in our country for what happens to a child, what their experience is in those first five years. We know exactly what happens when a kid goes to kindergarten. That's a universal experience at this point, thank goodness. But we've never, as a country, embraced 
the incredible golden opportunity of brain development that's really in the first two to three years where 80% of the brain is developing. There's a million neurons firing every second. The things we have learned about brain development, brain science in the past couple of decades need to be incorporated into our policies and our programs, and they haven't been yet systematically. I mean, there's all sorts of wonderful small examples out there, of which I believe we have one. But what do we do to create the architecture to be able to put those, to bridge the gap between what we know and what we do? So in 2013, to take, to take full advantage of this knowledge about the home environment, we launched a program called Book Babies, which is a very simple program. It is one in which we go into the home of families with newborns three times a year during the first three to four years, and we do a home visit that is all about literacy coaching and book provision. So it's a light touch. It's a very simple intervention where we are saying to the family when they have a a tiny little lump of a newborn, we will keep coming back at regular intervals over the course of this child's life until this child enrolls in kindergarten, which may right now feel like a really long way away when this baby weighs 10 pounds. But in terms of this child's brain, now is the time to begin the, the wonderful work of nourishing it and, and doing the work to lay the foundation for success. And what we're going to do is find out what your hopes and dreams are, bring you resources about brain development, help you work toward those hopes and dreams for your child, and make sure that every time we come, we're bringing lots of brand new books that are age appropriate. Right. It's a simple program that is born of developing a loving, trusting, respectful, non-judgmental relationship with parents of Medicaid-eligible babies starting at birth and continuing for five full years. And the books are kind of the leader. They're the, you know, the, the shiny thing that everybody pays attention to. But what we're doing is modeling on their couches and at their kitchen tables what dialogic reading looks like, what it means to just describe the words on a page and use vocabulary, whether you yourself as the parent know how to read or not. It makes no difference. And so we're instilling in the parents a sense of self-confidence, that they are the game changer. They are the champion. They are the, the person who can really help lay the groundwork for their child in a way that nobody else can. They're the experts. So that home domain is one that we are really, really eager to be a part of as the accompaniment to the people doing the hard work, the parents themselves. And for me, the, the other eureka moment was that we haven't in our country and in, our, in, our, in my own community done enough to lift up the power of parents. Mm. And it's something that we all talk about it right now. It's a, it's a big hot topic, but to really do it in, in ways that are culturally competent and actually bring ourselves to a relationship with parents that that is truly putting them in the driver's seat is a very elusive thing. And I'm disappointed that we haven't done more collectively to to put programs into practice that actually do that. And we're trying to pioneer here at Book Harvest one that does it very well and will, with any luck, show some impacts around kindergarten readiness as a result. Because I think until we do put parents in the driver's seat, all these interventions may not yield much fruit if we haven't done that one simple thing. Well, there's a lot of programs out there that seem to be top down. The nonprofit decides what they think is important, and then they expect the parents to get in line. How did you learn about the best ways to engage parents in the process yourself? There are many ways, and we have to re-earn that trust every week, month, and year. So it's a it's a continuing exercise in both designing and co-designing with parents effective programming and earning the trust that keeps them coming back so we have low attrition. 
the simplest and, and most, you know, elegantly simple thing we do is that we show up on their doorstep shortly after their baby is born. We come to them. We try to always, with everything we do, meet parents where they are, because even as a, as a new parent myself, without income insecurity, I found it really hard to get anything done. So sure. <laughs> for someone to come to a parent at that time, that inflection point in their life, that time of critical stress and opportunity and the sense that it's overwhelming and it's also full of potential is really, really important. And if you start the relationship that way, you know, we call them and we say, we have these books we'd like to bring you and we'd love to, to meet your baby. Um, when is a good time? You know, if it's a Sunday morning, that's when we're there. If it's an evening, if it's if it takes three times of them canceling because the baby has kept them up all night and they're too tired to see us, we just keep waiting till the time is right. And we show up when we say we will. And we show up with a big smile and a hug. And we show up reminding them that they are rock stars doing the work that they're doing to raise this tiny being. It's the most important work they'll ever do. And we're here to, to support them in, in believing in themselves and doing that work. Yeah. We also, you know, handing someone a bag of brand new books is a really great way to show that we are there for them. It's not just saying, we might give you something if you earn it, or we're going to give you one book and we might give you more later, but we're going to give you, you know, it just, there's a lot about it that is bountiful and leads with abundance. Sure. Once we have that starter down payment on a good relationship with ample resources and with a smile and with a sense of enormous respect and non-judgmentalism, the work to be done involves creating feedback loops that we're constantly activating for parents. So every time we go and sit in their homes, which is a privilege for us to be invited into their homes, we're asking them, what do you want and need to, to help supercharge your child's brilliance? And what can we do to bring you next time or to share with you next week, you know, in a follow-up phone call, the, the information about brain development that you feel like you would benefit from? And so they set their own goals from home visit to home visit, and we customize those goals, those interactions, and that the content of the home visit based on what their goals are. Right. We do have certain parts of each home visit that are included, like, you know, in a three- and a four-year-old, we're going to do something around reading and writing, holding a pencil, but that's not to override what they want. It's a, it's a piece of the whole. When we send out reading tips by text twice a week, they can always reply to those with further questions and, 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 you know, sort of sharing news that they went to story time at the library this week, which they're very proud to share because they know that we're their, their teammates and they want a chance to be the first to tell us that, you know, I got a library card or we went and bought more books for ourselves this past week. There's a real sense of teamwork. And as soon as the feedback loops are not two way, you've done something, which is what you mentioned in your question which is to make it about it being on our terms, not theirs. And we don't ever want to do that. I know a lot of texting and emailing programs that send tips to parents. I don't know any that actually encourage two-way communication, more like you're creating a relationship with that parent as opposed to just sending them ideas. Right. We, we send them a, a single survey question or we let them know about an event and we ask if they need transportation. We find ways to make it a low-level, high-tech conversation, which this generation of parents, which I am not of, I'm the older generation that's still trying to understand the power of technology, mm -hmm. but it is a potent force for, for keeping thriving relationships going and giving us the data we need to keep making our interventions and programs as strong as they can be based on what parents need. And that's really exciting to me. That's wonderful. I know that you were surprised from what I understand 
when you got into Book Harvest that parents experienced all these barriers to giving their children a literacy-rich environment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, it, I could write many books about this. I probably <laughs> never will because I just want to do the work. But right. it is really sobering to me to experience the world as best I can from my point of privilege through the lens of a, you know, a young parent of color with income challenges trying to raise a child. The reasons for that challenge are too many to go into in this, in this conversation, but there are just systemic inequities and systemic racisms that are way deeper than I understand at this point. I'm beginning to peel the, the layers off the onion, but the manifestation of it is that a young parent with a child will fairly quickly get the message, probably when they're still in the prenatal stages, that they are operating at a deficit and they are not given signals from the world around them that they can be good parents and that they are entitled to. There's just so much stacked against them. And I know that when I was having kids, you know, I needed that constant affirmation that I could do it. The, the message that you can do it, we can help was something I got a lot from the world around me. And when I go into the, the, the departments of social services and the other places where parents have to go to get the support they need to make ends meet and to get the entitlements they need for their children, whatever it may be, it feels like a very clientized situation throughout their day. And the microaggressions are many. And no one of them is itself going to topple a parent's power, but collectively they have wear and tear that is real. And we now know a lot more about early brain development. We're all talking about ACEs and about ways in which stressors can take their toll on long-term health you know, outcomes for people in their 50s and 60s. I think we're just beginning to understand that the day-to-day experiences of parents and children can either nourish and charge them with power to tackle the challenges that any parent faces in raising a child, or they can deplete them in a way that makes them be much more in survival mode and not be able to get themselves to the library to get a library card or know that they can pop into their local Walmart and find books on the shelves for a couple of bucks um, and build a home library, and that they may not feel like they're welcome walking into these places that have literacy resources because it just doesn't feel very customer service driven. Right. And I know whenever I stand in line at the office or the driver's license bureau, I get a tiny taste of that and just in my everyday life. And it can be a real buzzkill. So for us to find a way to create spaces for families that are first and foremost meeting them where they are, whether that is their home, the laundromat, the, the health clinic where they happen to bring their child for their well check and they find a bookshelf in the, health, in the waiting room for families that's brimming with beautiful books and signs that say free books, take as many as you want. We need to keep showing up with bountiful resources and with this message that you are awesome, your child is brilliant, you can do it, and we are here to help. It just needs to be done constantly over and over again. There's a lot of programs out there that try and give kids books for the summer to kind of stem summer learning loss. Mm -hmm. Books on Break, which is your program, can you tell me a little bit about how that's different from some of the other programs? Sure, and I hope it's not different because I hope that a lot of them are doing some of what we now know from research as best practices. Um, and we just this week released a guide called Summer Counts, which which really connects our nine best practices in books on break to research and, you know, making the case for 
there are some really, really great ways to do this work that can yield maximum impact from a child having this inoculation against summer learning loss in the form of a stack of books. So what we do with Books on Break, and that, that gets us into the second domain where, where children spend a lot of time, which is school once they reach the age of five, it's very simple. And like everything we do, we try to keep it simple. It is this idea that all of our kids are doing really well for the most part, even in schools that are resource poor for nine months of the year. They are in a place that's rich with vocabulary, with printed and spoken language, you name it. So we really decided with our limited resources, we're not going to worry much about kids when they're in school. There's a lot going on to stimulate their brain. But we get to this awful, really um, tragic cliff when we hit this period of 12 weeks in the summer where they're done. You know, they're not coming to this this language-rich environment every day. And so what can we do to bolster that period of time with some low-hanging fruit resources? And the answer is pretty simple. If you can take that school environment at the end of the school year and create a chance for the children to self-select 10 books that they take home to read over the summer and keep forever, you've done something very simple. It's a one-time thing that may, in fact, buffer them against summer learning loss to the tune of 40 or 50 percent or more. That is just, to me, it's like no question we should be doing this for every child. So that's exactly what we do. We go into schools at the end of the school year. We set up this incredibly joyful, super fun, free book fair on all the tabletops of the school media center. We hand every child a string backpack that is preloaded with literacy tips for their parents with an invitation to come to our office any day during the summer to pick out as many more books as they want. Hmm. And the kids fill those backpacks with 10 books. They pick them out. We work really hard to explain to the teachers this is not about the just right book or making sure that they're picking books that are on their level. They may pick books that are too easy to read to their younger siblings. They may pick books that are too hard because a parent or an older sibling is going to read it to them. We want them to have agency over that selection of their 10 books. It is so happy. It is so much fun. The kids love it. And then when they take the books home, if they've got 10, you know, there's some chance they're going to actually read four or five of them because some of them will be false starts and some will be awesome. And the research shows that four to five books being read over the summer is a really, really big deal. So we run it full of joy and opportunity, not at all talking to the kids about, if you don't read these books, you're going to have summer learning loss. There's nothing in this equation with the kids that is anything but positive. And every year, you know, we hear them say things like, the book ladies are back, and I can't wait. And, and, you know, kids who do this every summer, we've now been with kids doing this starting in kindergarten six years ago, who in fifth grade this coming spring are going to have a home library of at least 50 or 60 books for their family to enjoy because they've done it every summer. And the benefits confer exponentially over time, I believe, from what the research is showing. Doing it once isn't bad, but if you can keep coming back, You build on the base of what you've laid with summer learning loss being addressed each summer. And the parents start to see it as a a cool thing where they can engage and they can know that if their string backpacks bring home information every summer, eventually they may look at it and say, I can go get more books anytime this summer, or I can reach out to them for information about the summer reading programs at the library. So we're finding subtle ways to engage parents that by virtue of continuing to show up and having them bring home these string backpacks every summer full of books that start to bring in whole families to this equation. I love the fact that the kids can self-select the books because very few programs, I mean, there, there are a lot of programs that do that, but there are a lot who that don't. 
And especially with every school getting this scholastic book fair and a lot of kids not being able to go in and buy books like the other kids. It's just a nice, nice environment where they can go in and pick everything out themselves and they're shopping for themselves. So. One of the things we see from that is kids telling other kids what they really have to read. Oh. Talk about a viral power. Yeah. You know, I've watched so many fourth grade boys who are typically your most reluctant readers say to their peer, oh, you got to get that wimpy kid book. It's the best. I got it last year. And, and like they're making a beeline for it. Yeah. And that self-efficacy, that agency is something we want to nurture in every child. It's powerful. They don't feel it a lot in the classroom necessarily. They certainly don't feel it out on the streets at home where they got a lot of other issues they're navigating. This is a place of power and respect and being a part of the literate community, which is something they need to feel. That's wonderful. Now, there's one program that you have that I think is a little surprising. I mean, with all the focus on grade level reading Mm -hmm. and getting reading scores up by third grade, you actually give books out to older kids, too. We do. We do, because we believe nobody's story is ever totally written. It's never done. We know that if kids have made it through to middle school with, you know, even the slightest shred of excitement about reading, I don't care what the third grade reading scores are, we want to keep feeding that that passion, even if it's a tiny flicker. And we also, one of our ways of changing the narrative on the streets of Durham and across North Carolina about access to books being a basic right for every child is that we open our doors to everybody in the community and say, if you've got books to donate, we need them. This is how I got started in 2011. Remember, I just barely mentioned it. And people were bringing me tons of books. As soon as you've donated a book to our cause, you are a part of the solution to the problem and you become an advocate. So we want to make sure lots of people are donating books. And guess what? We get tons of amazing middle and high school books in here. We don't want those to sit in dormant. So what we did was we said, our, our target audience is not kids after the, our first, our, our focus is the first decade of life, really and truly. We're focused super heavily on birth of five and elementary school. But we, as I said, want to keep that buzz going after the first 10 years in middle and high school. And we have all these books piling up here that are just amazing, beautiful books. Some of them are brand new practically and they're high interest. And so what we do is we, allow, we, we enlist teachers of middle and high schoolers to come in here and select the sexiest books they can find for their kids. And, you know, I love it when a middle school teacher asks me if I've got any books that have been banned because they (laughs) they know that's what the kids will read. And we basically let them take back as many books as they want, as long as the deal is they can give them to their kids, take home and keep forever. No obligation to write a book report or to promise to read them. It's just a free and clear, isn't this cool, take whatever you want. And so we have this ground army of teachers who come in here at regular intervals, intervals throughout the year they arrive with their rolling bags from the, you think they're heading to the airport, but the rolling bags are empty. They fill them with books. They take them back to their classrooms, and we get the most amazing letters from the students. You know, sometimes they'll write us. The teacher will say, well, if you want to write book harvest and tell me your favorite book, please do so. We get incredible testimonials from these eloquent middle and high schoolers who are so psyched about having found their new favorite book. And, you know, it's a low-level part of what we do, but it's really important. Sure. And I'd like to think that we are, in the long term, when we've been here a lot longer than we've been so far, kids who are coming through that first decade flush with resources and with power are going to be a part of our what we call our Books to Go program. This is the middle and high school program. And just keep feeding this fuel of love of reading, which is the key to having a civically engaged society where people feel full participants in their destinies. And, you know, not to be too metaphysical about it, but... 
if we know high schoolers are reading and willingly and excitedly reading great stories, I have a lot of hope for our future. Well, in starting Book Harvest and in growing it, as you have over the past eight years, what are the biggest challenges that you discovered and the lessons you learned? I'll talk about a couple. There's many, and I'm still learning. And we have a lot of failures. We have a lot of successes, but we have failures that become successes because we learn from the feedback about what didn't work. So we have to be in continuous improvement mode. But I would say a couple of them are, first and foremost, the work to authentically be parent-led is some of the hardest work you'll ever do. And that's why a lot of groups don't do it or can't do it. To truly embrace parents as full partners and co-producers of outcomes for their kids that we all want, it's easy to say. It's really, really hard to manifest in practice. It requires a super long game, not just the marathon. It's like the marathon every, as soon as you finish one, you start another one. It is expensive, and it requires a community of funders who are going to be with you for the long game, not looking for one drive-by program that they expect you to report results on that are somehow moving the needle. Every time we have an event with parents in our Book Babies program, and we're constantly trying to have events to build that sense of social capital among parents and networking, because as one parent recently told me, everything I do, I learn from another parent. So we want to really bring them together in a place where they can support each other. But every time we do that, we have to provide four things. Translation services, so people who are not native English speakers are fully included. That's super important. Child care. So if the parents are coming, they're encouraged to bring their kids, and they're confident that the kids are going to come and have a really nice time. Meals. We've got to feed people. We don't, you don't ask them to come out in their busy schedules without offering them dinner. And the fourth, which we always have to offer, is transportation. If we're only taking parents who can come to us, which is you know something we ask them to do occasionally, without addressing the issue of transportation, then we're only getting the parents who are most able to attend. And we need to include everybody in this. So those four things have to be included with every single parent event. And it's not something you can write a budget for very efficiently. You've got to really build in the cost of what if half our parents say, we're going to need a ride. We've got to pay for that. Mm-hmm. So it's long, slow, expensive work. And our funder community is unfortunately often in a cycle of once a year or even once every two years, um, which is better than once a year. But reporting deliverables on that time frame you have to resist the urge to not count the number of books as your success metric. That's a success metric. But the real success metric has to be, are these babies kindergarten ready? And we're not going to know that answer for a while. And we've got to do a lot of work all the way through to get to that point. So funding the work that needs to be done in the way it needs to be done is always going to be a challenge. And if we do that, we're able to build trust with parents, which means we won't have attrition. So it's all bundled together. The second challenge I think that I'm thinking about an awful lot, which a lot of other people are too, is what we're seeing on the front lines with parents every day is very affirming for us, and we really feel like we're doing the work that needs to be done. But what we think doesn't really matter, we have to have external evaluation showing results in some way. If we can have external researchers say, yes, this intervention of light-touch home visiting and book provision over five years actually does confer kindergarten readiness at a price tag that is way less than anything else has been able to show so far. Then we have an opportunity to scale within a single community and replicate in other communities and make this what could potentially be, in a society that has no birth to three coherent strategy, a new normal. 
I believe it's the most cost-effective way, if we do find it confers kindergarten readiness, of everything that's out there right now to deliver that, which is the necessary prerequisite to third-grade reading proficiency. So external evaluation is also expensive, and it has to be done, or else we will forever be a small, nice program that is serving a handful of families very well, but will never be something that we can replicate and sustain potentially throughout our country, which is what I think we want to push the question of. I would love to think that any intervention around the birth to five space that is showing robust results has a chance to be put into the arenas of all these really smart people thinking hard about this from a policy perspective. And I hope we're not the only one. I hope there's lots of us out there because it's going to take a lot of innovation labs and a lot of incubators to yield the handful that are actually going to be something that could be rolled out across our country the way you know, kindergarten has been. Now kindergarten's universal. We're starting to talk about pre-K being universal. I want us to be talking about home visiting in the first three years being universal. It's clear to me that's what needs to happen. Fantastic, Ginger. I really appreciate you coming on and keep up the good work there in North Carolina. Well, thank you. And I so appreciate the chance to talk with you because, you know, I know a lot of us are really thinking hard about these challenges. There are no more important challenges than our children and our future. And gosh, if people hearing this want to connect with us about things they're doing and ways we can link arms and work together, I am so open to that. We got a lot of big answers to come up with, and I'm super excited. Next week, we'll have David Lawrence, Jr., author of A Dedicated Life, Journalism, Justice, and A Chance for Every Child. After spending most of his life as a journalist in newspapers across the country, David retired as publisher of the Miami Herald in 1999. Almost immediately, he started a crusade to improve the outcomes of children in Florida and across the country. Now, a final thought. Zero to Three and Child Trends have released a new report that chronicles the story of America's babies and toddlers, called the State of Babies Yearbook. It charts 60 indicators across three policy areas, health, families, and early learning. There's a lot of useful information in it that can help you put your state in perspective compared to the rest of the country and might show you a few problems that your organization could focus on in the coming years. For instance, here in Florida, our rate of children with developmental delays is twice the national average. So here's your homework. Go to stateofbabies.org and check it out to see if your assumptions about your state are borne out by the data and if there might be problems you weren't aware of. Have a great week. 